Coming up on this week's show, how you can play Doom to help Ukraine. A long lost N64 game is found. And we talk FMV games with designer Aaron Connors. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books you should definitely check out is Game Boy, the box art collection. A real celebration of the game artwork on the packaging of Nintendo's monochrome Marvel. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming books on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 317. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to our humble little show that each week takes you behind the scenes on the world of classic video games. Obviously with a healthy dose of nostalgia sprinkled on as well. And we speak to a veteran of the industry on each week's show. Now, bearing in mind we've done 317 episodes of this podcast, it is incredible the amount of people we've talked to from all walks of life, from all different parts of the world, who are all brought together through, you know, this industry that is now the biggest entertainment medium in the world. And I just love hearing the stories about how these games are now legendary were actually made to me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love doing the news with you guys that we're going to do in just a moment. But actually hearing from these people that were there, like back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, working on these games, it's just incredible to hear it. Oh, I really enjoy it. And we've had some fantastic guests on, but we've got some amazing people. Like recently, we've been contacting a lot of people because we're going on holiday. So we've got to kind of get some fantastic guests and not, you know, mess up the kind of schedule that we've got going on. Um, I don't don't know. We have been working our socks off recently, haven't we? I think we've got about eight interviews we're recording over the next two weeks. Some of which are like, you know, I go as far to say, you know, triple A guests who've never maybe done a podcast before. You know, don't tease it too much, but we've got some amazing stuff coming up, haven't we? We're even doing one from Japan. We are. We are. But not to take away from our amazing guest this week, Aaron Connors, who uh, he worked on a lot of FMV games, didn't he, Ravi? Uh, yeah, so he worked on Under a Killing Moon, which is part of the Tex Murphy series, and uh, it was the first kind of multimedia game to come on four CDs. It was one of these huge FMV productions, and mm. he also worked on quite a few as well, Spielberg series, a few unreleased games, which were really exciting. Dan, uh, do you know the Tex Murphy series at all? Well, these works, I mean, the original one came out in 1989, and you're right, by the time the third game came out, Under a Killing Moon, 94, that was like a FMV game. What did you say was that four CD-ROMs, which, <laughs> you know, for the time, I remember, you know, a single CD-ROM felt like infinite storage. Never mind that many, so that was quite the achievement. But actually, you know, the, the, the way these games developed over just that kind of five-year period was quite remarkable, really, because the first game came out on, like, the Commodore 64 and uh, MS-DOS and the Atari ST, and it's actually, it's a bit like a, a spoof kind of, um, you could say, cross between something like Indiana Jones or Dick Tracy and Blade Runner, yeah. you know, borrowing, like, you know, a lot of ideas from film noir and cyberpunk kind of games as well. Very tongue-in-cheek games, aren't they, the Tex Murphy games? Yeah, they've got that kind of element of the old point-and-click games where they're really cheeky, mm. got loads of jokes going on, you know, he's an alcoholic, he's got kind of a, a, a different vibe going on. And these series really, really got updated and uh, went to video, FMV, there's been remasters and re-releases of uh, new titles. He's also turned it into novels, so... It's kind of been novelized this series and uh 
yeah, really interesting guest. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. So Aaron Connor's our special guest on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, of course, we have got lots of stories to get into this week. I mean, let's jump straight into them. Um, obviously, I mean, you know, we did mention last week that, that there's a lot going on in the world right now. We like to think of our podcast as uh, you know, a bit of escapism from everything that's going on, but occasionally there are stories that are that big that, you know, it affects everyone. And of course, the crisis in Ukraine at the moment, I mean, that is, you know, headline news. It's on everyone's mind right now. But it is nice to see that the video games industry is uh, getting behind the people of Ukraine and doing whatever they can to support them as well, including the legendary John Romero, who's released his first Doom 2 level since 1994, which is actually all donations are going to the humanitarian causes for the people of Ukraine. Yeah, so he's released uh, a new level called One Humanity for Doom 2 um, for five euros with, like you say, 100% of the five euro donation going towards the crisis in Ukraine, which is really cool. And, you know, I straight away, I was like, I'm sure he did like a pseudo sequel in like 2019 and he did a level in 2016, but they were actually on for Doom 1. This yeah. is the first time he's done anything with Doom 2 since 1994, essentially since when he left it. Um, so it's mm. really, really cool. And it actually runs on the original copy of Doom 2, which is really cool. It's like an open source port and you need to download a a, a, WOD, a .wad file, which contains like a text file to get it working. Um, but I think that's really cool that you can play it that you play it on Doom 2 for, like, your PC, which I, I just think it's awesome that he's done that as well. Yeah, Doom fans are going to lap this up, and it's uh, only €5, Euros, which mm. which is pretty decent. And even if you aren't a Doom fan, it's it's worth helping out, isn't it? You know, it's for the Red Cross and uh, UN Emergency Response Fund. And, you know, even from a gameplay perspective, I mean, there have been so many kind of, you know, third-party and fan-made water files release. That was always the appeal of mm. the Doom games, really, that anyone could kind of make a Doom level. Yeah. And there have been some, you know, wild and weird stuff over the last 25 years. But having, like, you know, John Romero, the guy that made the game, mm. back in the hot seat, designing levels, you know, no one knows the engine like John does. So I think um, I'm looking forward to playing these. They're available right now from his website, Romero.com. Uh, you can give them a download from there. Like you said, it's only... Um, five euros but i've got a feeling these are going to be really good i mean i haven't seen any reviews of them yet but just from the screenshots it does look like you know kind of return to form if you're a big classic doom fan back in the day i'm very tempted to do this because if i recently played through literally from doom one all the way up to like doom eternal (laughs) like i did like one two three what what system did you use i did it on xbox one because they're all on game pass Mm. so you know i'm tempted to just kind of do this just you know, on my PC, I haven't got it, but I'm tempted to download it, jump on, you know, Romero's shop and, you know, for five euros and going towards charity as well. You know, even if I don't get it running too well on my computer, I know it's gone to a good cause for, for five minutes of fun for me. But like you say, it does look like a return to form. It does look really, really cool. And, you know, there's like the cyber demons and stuff like that on it as well, which is always awesome. Joe, you've got to get that running on your modern Windows 10 PC. (laughs) Back in the 90s, we had to deal with IRQ conflicts and sound card configuration and everything. You've got it easy. Doom will run on anything. I'm a console guy. I'm a console guy and I'm terrible at anything when it comes to PC. Maybe that could be a funny video, you know, of me trying to get Doom 2 to work on my computer. People just screaming at me like, maybe I should like do it like a Twitch or a live stream or something of it. You have to do it all through command line. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, that is why Joe, even though he's the youngest member of the Retro Hour team, we call him Grandpa Joe. Yeah, honestly. Massive technical. <laughs> So if you want to get hold of that, like I said, Romero.com, definitely worth a download. You're doing it for a great cause and it looks fantastic levels as well. So I'll put that in this week's show notes too. Now we always get excited when we see um, long lost games finally surfacing. And this is something that looks really weird, actually. For the N64, a prototype of a game called uh, Carnival Senzo's Adventure has surfaced. Now this was a game from 1999 and I've watched this video um, that's been uploaded by a YouTube channel called Hard Four Games. And this looks like something out of a, a Tim Burton movie. It's or kind of nightmarish, bizarre. isn't it? <laughs> it, it? It is very nightmarish and it is very Tim Burton, but the story behind it is quite interesting. So I had no idea that this existed, let alone that it was based on like a European film that got like a really limited release in 1999. So the film is the same name of the game, Carni- Carn- Carnival. I keep thinking it's the game Carnival, the you know the light gun game, but it's car- but yeah, you know, you know, in that video he pronounces it Carnival, Carnival, all kinds of different yeah, ways. So so. Car- Carni- it looks, it's got an accent over Carnival. it. Yeah, it's like Carnival. Senzo's Adventure is essentially a animated film where kids get trapped in like an evil carnival, um, and if they don't escape, they will get turned into like carnival attractions, like rides and stuff like that. And Essentially, the game was being made by, is it Terraglyph Interactive Studios and being published by Vatical Entertainment in 1999. But essentially, they ran out of money when they were making the game and they unfortunately went bankrupt and the game never got released. But it was pretty much finished from watching this video. You know, there's a couple of glitches and things like that. But the game, I feel, I don't know if you feel the same way, Dan. I know you've watched the video. It feels quite ahead of its time, you know. There's, there's, mm. there's a lot going on in it. I mean, it's got that it's kind a of free cla- roam element in there. Yeah, oh, yeah. It, it reminded me of like Banjo Kazooie or Donkey Kong sixty four for the N sixty four. That like open world, you can go around yeah. like collectible it, 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 of fun. It looks like um, Hogs of War as well. It kind of yeah, yeah, it's of got that. that graphical style. Yeah, um, but it's got loads of mini games built into it, and it looks like they were really onto something. It just it's just based on a really obscure IP by the looks of things. Mm. I like um, the idea of going around a carnival and kind of, you know, playing mini games and uh, yeah. it's a nice concept. For but it's a all game. twisted and evil. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, there's even a bit that's like um, karting, a bit like Mario Kart. Yeah. <laughs> the, like a racing well, element. This is the thing. Like, I mean, there's, there's go-karting in it. There's like, you know, throwing, <laughs> throwing like at the coconuts. There's also like, you know, maze. there's a hedge maze. There's the giant, you know, the mallet where you hit the mallet and it, I forget the name of it, but, you know, it shoots up and hits the bell, you know, like the strongman competition. There's all these, like, Mario Party-esque kind of mini games in the game. Um, but then it's got this big collector fun, like, you know, you've got to collect the gold coins and you've got to grind to get the currency so you can then buy items to unlock further areas in the world map. So they were really onto something and, you know, it was very, you know, of the time, like I say, like Donkey Kong 64 and stuff like that, but it's definitely something... I would have liked to have played, you know, when it came out on the N64. But we we don't know how it's been found or anything like that. Essentially, Forest of Illusion have put it out uh, and somebody called Baker64 has got a hold of the ROM and dumped it mm. for everybody to kind of it play. It might be from one of these big leaks. Like, I'm looking at the I wondered that, yeah. Forest it of doesn't Illusion. mention it anyway. Well, well, Forest of Illusion, where they've, where they've posted it, they've actually posted that they've actually got the cartridge 
So it's oh. not come from one of these leaks. They've actually got the plastic. I don't know if you've ever seen a development N64 cartridge, but it's like two N64 cartridges, essentially. Like It's like twice the height of one, if that makes sense. So it's like a really tall N64 cartridge. And then it's literally just got like a sticker on it that says Terraglyph Interactive Studios. And then it's like just got a label on the top, which says like NUSAF, like, like a code. I would love to know the story of where they've bought it from, if they've bought it in like an auction or, you know, somebody's just found it and sent it to them or something like that. You know, I think it, it's... It a- seems they're kind of doing multiple releases from different systems here. So they've got like Game Boy and Super Oh, did they? Wii. So they're releasing prototypes, like all, all types of prototypes on this site, which is pretty oh, cool. Oh, got you on the site on Forest of Illusion. Yeah. yeah I thought yeah. you meant the game Carnival had like a Wii oh, version. No. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> They've converted it, Joe. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk about the, I mean, I haven't seen the film. No, like I said, haven't got a limited release. The main character, what the hell is that about? To me, looking at it, it reminds me a bit of the first thing, the way I can describe him. It's remember on Beetlejuice when Alec Baldwin's character like pulls his nose down and pops his eyeballs out. Well, this is the interesting thing. I've only done very minimal research of the film, lots of research on the game, <laughs> as always, but there were several children who get trapped in the carnival. So I believe he is only one of like three or four characters from the film. So it looks like an old man though. He does look he like a forty year old like man. He does <laughs> he, he does like, you know, he's like balding and stuff, but he looks I like th- Abe's Abe from Abe's Odyssey a bit. But I think <laughs> I'm gonna have a guess that he would have been one of several characters you unlock. So like in Donkey Kong sixty four, you just start with Donkey Kong, but as you unlock more of the game, you unlock all the different other monkeys and apes, and eventually you end up with like five characters and they all have their own abilities. So like this guy's got like a pea shooter and he's got like his own particular go-kart, whereas in like the go-karting bits, he's like racing against the other kids who have all got their own different go-karts. So I imagine as the game kind of goes on, you unlock the other kids, but I don't think the build that we've got a hold of has that part of it in. I could be wrong, it's just speculation, Mm. but just from playing those kind of games, that's kind of what happened and just from looking at the film. You know, because he is a very odd-looking character, like you say. Yeah. When there's other kids they could have based it on in the film. So uh, if you want to play it, actually, they, they've uploaded the the ROM file uh, to the um, 64history.net website. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes. If you've got an EverDrive, which you know I have, um, there is a yeah prototype ROM that you can download that I imagine will play on there. So uh, always interesting to kind of get a glimpse on games that didn't make it to market, I think, isn't it? Especially ones that are in this state where they look almost finished. Mm, yeah, definitely. So, and it, um, it's a nice-looking game as well. Yeah, I'm glad they actually get released rather than kept in somebody's hands, like, locked away. <laughs> well, we've been talking about Metal Slug recently. Now, um, this is a cool little video uploaded by uh, Retro Game Force looking at Metal Slug Warfare for the Sega Mega Drive. And uh, this looks very impressive. Yeah, this is Metal Slug Warfare demo version 2.2a which I've seen posted on a channel called Retro Game Force, and I don't feel like this has got enough, enough love. You know, I've not seen it too much on the internet. You know? You're the only person that I've actually heard it from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think this really looks really, really cool. So this has been uploaded by a studio, Studio Vitier, which I believe is a Spanish studio, who have made this mm. for the Mega Drive and on the channel uh, Retro Game Force. They've got their hands on it and they're playing it. And, you know, it works on... Everdrive, so you just download it, stick it on your Mega Drive, Everdrive, but there's nothing else going on or anything like that. Because when I first saw it and I sent it over to Ravi, I hadn't watched the video yet, and I was like, oh, 
there must be some crazy stuff going on, you know, to get it running or whatever. But they, there isn't. It is literally a port of, of Metal Slug. So it's not quite a full port. It's like a uh, a one-level version. So it's based on the original Metal Slug, and you can only play as one character, which is the the guy in the red jacket with the blonde hair. I think his name's Marco. I'm not 100%. Yeah, it's like a side-scrolling one. And, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That, that, all the Metal Slug games are like that. But but it's really it's kind of a bit more zoomed in than, yeah, than usual. Yeah, it is a little bit more zoomed in, and the sprites are a little bit bigger and a little bit less detailed. And the color palette is, I would say, a little bit duller than it is on like yeah. the Neo Geo and the arcade. Maybe um, that that is maybe because they've just converted it over quickly. Yeah, and like, you know, they might be able to touch up. Kind of yeah, thing. but I think what's really interesting about it is it's not quite the full game it's kind of like a a mini game where it's just one level that you're on and it's just a case of get a high score just kill as many enemies as possible which i think is probably the best they could do in terms of compressing it and getting you know the assets onto the mega drive and it's still sounding good yeah you're not gonna have the huge kind of tank going in there yeah you're not gonna (laughs) yeah with the massive massive bosses and stuff because Ultimately, Metal Slug was a, it was on 32-bit hardware. It was on 32-bit. It got ported to like the PlayStation and, you know, um, in Japan it was ported to the Sega Saturn and stuff like that. It was never meant for like, you know, 16-bit hardware. Um, but the fact that they've got it running and it's even got some really good like, you know, like the voice synthesizer on it. It's got that proper Mega Drive feel to it. But nice. it's, it is it is Metal Slug. Like, I'm a fan of Metal Slug and you look at it and you can hear it. And the sound effects and everything are Metal Slug. So I think this needs some It's love. very smooth as well, the scrolling. Yeah, it? it's, it's really smooth. It's not got the greatest frame rate. But that being said, the original kind of like two Metal Slugs for the Neo Geo, like, you know, for the arcades, didn't ha- they actually had loads of slowdown and like quite low frame rates on them. So I will, I will give them that. And they've considering they've had to cut quite a lot and you only ever get a couple of enemies on screen. You do still get all the guns, like you get like the rocket launcher, the homing launcher, like the the machine gun, like you even get the double Uzi and stuff like that. So pretty impressed with it. And, you know, there's a few frames of animation in like, you know, where you kill the enemies and stuff like that, what they've had to cut. But you've got to kind of pinch yourself and remind yourself that it's running on the Mega Drive. Yeah, and and it's not like emulated or anything. They're saying it's been captured Mm -hmm. with the uh, OSSC and, uh, you know, it's real hardware, so... Well, this is a one megabyte download, so you can put that on your uh, your EverDrive, play it on there, or you know your favourite Mega Drive slash Genesis emulator. I love the fact as well. I mean, they are selling this on their website, which is um, I'll put in the show notes, evertia.itchio.itch.io. It's one of those name your own price downloads, oh, okay. which I think is always cool. So, I mean, you know, it's only a demo version, like you said. Um, but the fact that when people do great fan projects like this, obviously a lot of time has gone into this, and we've we've talked about a lot of fan games on the show over the last six years, this is one of the best I've seen, I think, the amount of effort that must have gone into this. I think it is always good to support these indie studios, isn't it? And, you know, encourage them to do more. Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to download that, definitely worth a look in. If you're a fan of Metal Slug and you want to play it on your Mega Drive, I'll put that in our show notes along with all the rest of the stories at theretrohour.com. A little reminder that the only way we can bring you the Retro Hour podcast every week and bring you our amazing guests is thanks to our incredible supporters on Patreon. Now, we do have that running at the moment. If you want to back us on there, load of perks, isn't the Joe, for being a fan of the show on Patreon? Loads and loads of perks. One of my favourite ones, 
is you do get to hang out with us once a month. We have the Patreon hangout, usually on the... Uh, no, no, no. We, we get to hang out with them. We get to hang out with them. <laughs> Even better. There we go. Down to better salesmen than me. But yeah, one of my favourite things is we do do the Patreon hangout, which we do uh, once a month on a Sunday night where we kind of all get together. And it's kind of like Ravi always says, it's like kind of like a bit of a user group. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of like a bit of a pub as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We all have a crack a drink open and kind of talk about what games we've been playing and what we've been buying recently and we don't always talk about retro games often talk about films and old mobile phones and stuff like that but then one of the other things we do which i absolutely love is our second podcast which i always think we've only done like five or six episodes to but i think we've done 20 episodes of it now which is 20 20 yeah 22 i think 22 there we go which is the retro hour after hours so if you're one of our gold uh tier patrons you do get access to the Retro Hour After Hours where we do all sorts on that. We do a little bit of behind the scenes, a little bit of extra content with like some of our guests. We've recently had Ian Grieve, who did an entire second episode for us, which would actually be his third episode that he's done for the Retro <laughs> Hour, which is just... His value for money. His value it? for more money, Ian Greaves. But we also do the Retro Years where, you know, we spent a lot of time talking through like our lives in gaming and... You know, and, you, into- and you also get an ad-free episode as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Even doing the silver tier, you get ad-free episode, and uh, sometimes you get the episodes a little bit early. Um, some weeks, bonus content bon- in there, bonus as well. content we in stories, there as well. So. Um, so yeah, you know, we're we're trying to make it worthwhile for people, and we do massively, massively appreciate it. And the last couple of months, we have been pushing it because it was a little bit slower, but you know. We're obviously doing something right because we've we've had a lot of people sign up this week, which we absolutely massively appreciate um, because of, as Dan says, it does keep the show independent and it does keep the show running, um, which, you yeah. know, we're, we're forever thankful for because of, I don't know about you guys, but doing the show does keep me sane from my nine till five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's not much in life that keeps me sane. Yeah. Doing this podcast definitely does. So uh, yeah, we hugely appreciate any support we get on that. I mean, it starts from like, I think it's like three pounds a month or mm. something, you know, price of a cup of coffee. So if you'd like to back us on Patreon, all the details are at the retrohour.com. And everyone that supports us on there, of course, finds their place in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And a massive thank you to our latest supporters, Steve House, Harry Viking, Sebastian Kiernan, Derek Young, and Owen Lister, who all backed us on Patreon over the last couple of weeks. We hugely appreciate that, guys. Thank you so much. And if you'd like to join them, as I said, all the details are at theretrohour.com, and we'll see you on the next Patrons Hangout. Right then, some more news stories before we chat to our special guest, Aaron Connors. Now, um, have you ever had a MIDI interface on your PC, Ravi, for those kind of old school games that used it. I always think they sound incredible when I see like LGR doing videos. I don't think outside of a museum I've actually heard mm. one. Like <laughs> um, I always wanted one, but I, I yeah. you know, there wasn't much support on the Amiga for um, like the MIDI devices as well. But yeah, uh, the MT32 is an absolutely amazing one. And uh, this is a little device, which is a Raspberry Pi Zero that what emulates an MT32. Yeah, this is crazy. Now, the thing I always love about hearing, I mean, it was more on PCs, like you said, wasn't it? And when you've heard like something like, you know, Monkey Island or a lot of those kind of old LucasArts adventure games being played on a MIDI synthesizer, they just sound so much better than something like a Sound Blaster. Really takes it to another level. Because, you know, these MIDI synths are like real instruments, aren't they? Yeah. And a lot of games, particularly that came out from like the mid-90s onwards on PCs, 
would take advantage of these. And you could really have like, you know, a full orchestra in a box well, playing well, the soundtrack. Monkey Islands is a great example of that. You know, if you actually look up on YouTube and hear the Roland MT32 version of kind of Monkey Island, oh, it's absolutely beautiful. So it's really cool, this little piece of hardware, and it's using a Raspberry Pi Zero kind of all built into one case, like a little enclosure. Mm. It's got a display on there, volume select. You can, you know, go in and out of your MIDI. It's uh, 3D printed. And, yeah, I'm pretty impressed by this. Uh, I don't know, is there a kind of supply-demand issue with Raspberry Pi Zeros at the moment? Well, everything seems to be, you know, because of the, uh, the the component shortage right now. I'm not sure whether Raspberry Pi Zeros are hard to get hold of, but, um, I mean, there are a lot of them out there. <laughs> you know, most people listening to our show have probably got two or three in, in a drawer somewhere. Didn't they come free with a like magazine us. at one point? Yeah, yeah, I think you might be right. Yeah, Magpie magazine. Yeah, we're trying to find him. Do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> Searching every news agent in Nottingham. Yeah, that was a fun weekend. Um, but yeah, this is really cool. This is a guy called uh, Dale Winham. Now, he's from uh, Newcastle. He's actually a PhD candidate studying computer science and game technology. So he's got a bit of spare time and he's really into vintage computers and his retro. So if you're listening, Dale, great work on this. And uh, this is going to blow your mind, Ravi. The Raspberry Pi just celebrated its 10th birthday. Oh, wow. Yeah, definitely. Last month. So, and to celebrate that, he thought, what better way than to, you know, use it for his retro hobby. And like you said, what he's really done here, he's made a Roland MT32 inside a Raspberry Pi, which is actually very timely because I was looking not long ago for, you know, Roland MT32s and other kind of synths as well to kind of get that. Because I've got, you know, a couple of old PCs. I've got a Pentium 1 and a 486, and I thought it might be a nice addition to I it. I think they're quite hard Cheap, to get. Um, they were like, the, the cheapest one I could find was about £300, Ooh. and that didn't look in very good condition. So I think there is definitely a demand, you know, for kind of, you know, MS-DOS kind of gamers of that era who really want this kind of well, thing. And uh, uh, it, you know, it says it will connect here to uh, FPGA Mister. Um, hmm. Also, the um, classic computers and arcade boards, so... You know, you can actually use it on the on the older systems and the originals as well, not just some emulated system. Yeah, I guess if it's compatible with like, you know, MIDI is a standard, isn't it? Yeah. So um, yeah, if it works with that, it should work on anything that supports MIDI. So uh, really cool little project. I mean, you know, again, the fact that Raspberry Pi is 10 years old. I love that interview that we did with Eben Upton yeah, yeah, a couple of years fantastic. ago talking about the history of the, the Raspberry Pi. And it's again, you know, at this week I, I turned my Raspberry Pi 400 into like, you know, my dream high-end Amiga setup using something called AmiKit. I'm, I'm going to release a video oh, on YouTube this week that. showing that. Um, but they've just got so many possibilities. And I think the fact that the retro community has really taken the Raspberry Pi under their wing over the last decade, and we're still seeing incredible, innovative projects like this. It's f- fantastic. So if you want to read more about that, it's all on GitHub, of course. And that's another great thing about that community. It's often all open source. Yeah, um, that, there is a problem there, though, that the uh, ROMs for the MT32 are actually copyrighted. But... Um, you know, you can you can get them uh, if you actually buy a ROM. Where there's a will, there's a way, right? So, yeah, we'll link that up, that guide. It's uh, got that article on Tom's Hardware in our show notes. Now, what about this? Uh, I know you're very excited about this, Joe. You've been itching to talk about this one. House of the Dead is getting a remake, of course, and a new trailer has landed, and we've got a release date for it now as well. I kid you not. So we spoke about this last year on the show when it was literally just like a 30 second long teaser trailer. Yeah. Um, mm. I think it was Nintendo Direct last year that they were like, how's the dead remakes coming to the Switch? So Nintendo Direct this year, <laughs> we now got a little bit more information because it was just saying coming in 2021 and obviously it never came. And 
I'm not going to lie, I'm a little bit obsessed with House of the Dead games, and I found myself Googling House of the Dead remake quite often to see when it was coming <laughs> Daily out. Daily routine. Daily routine, wake up in the morning, brush my teeth, Google House of the Dead remake. Um, <laughs> but yeah, finally, we actually have a final trailer for it, which gives us a lot more kind of a view of the game and, you know, what it's going to be doing. And, you know, it's, just, it's a remake of House of the Dead. That's, you know, that's all we that's all we need, really. And, you know, really nice graphics and awesome, you know, soundtrack and stuff like that by the sounds of things. But it's coming out April 7th on the Switch and it's up for pre-order from March 31st. Absolutely gutted because I'm going on holiday the last week of March, so I would have loved to have had it uh, and blasted it all that week. But yeah, it looks... Are, are you going to get physical then? You, you don't I don't know. They haven't this. said if it's physical right. or not. I've got a feeling okay. that it, with pre-orders only being from the 31st and it coming out on the 7th, I've got a feeling it's going to be digital only. Um, see, see why, why do they do pre-orders on digital? Because there's an unlimited supply. Yeah, I don't know. It's a bit, a bit of a strange one. But, you know, I, I've Googled it and there doesn't seem to be much information at the point of us recording mm. this, like if there is going to be a physical one. But, you know, no doubt with it being on the Switch, we'd probably get one from... Oh, what are they called? A limited run? I'm sure they will. How would you shoot things on the Switch then? Is it like touchscreen or D-pad or... The Joy-Cons actually work like Wii Yeah, the Joy-Cons work like Wii remotes. Like, you know, the old Wii remotes. So you can shoot the screen with them from what I understand. Um, And, you know, you have a little cursor on the screen so you know where you're shooting. um, Because then they're not... I found that they're not quite as accurate as like light guns. um, But they they definitely do the trick. Yeah. but there's yeah, that got- Sindon light gun as well, which, uh, yeah. you know, if this is released on another system, maybe that'll be compatible. Yeah, it doesn't say it's exclusively exclusively for the Switch. I keep seeing, like, landing on the Switch first, you know, like, you know, that kind of language being used. So, you know, watch this space. It might come out on some other consoles. But, yeah, really looking forward to this one. But, you know, so far what we know is that we've got the arcade classic with modern graphics and modern controls. Um, true to the original gameplay, it's saying local two-player multiplayer um, with multiple endings. And then, you know, it's like always photo mode and achievements. And there's an armory with unlockable weapons, which you didn't get in the first game. It wasn't until the later games that you start getting like shotguns and machine guns and stuff like that. And it does say that there's a new game mode with hordes of undead monsters. So I'm assuming a horde mode on there as well. So um, I'm really hoping... I don't think it's going to be the case. I'm really hoping that you unlock the original on the game as well. Like once you complete it, it's like, here's the original from like 96. You can play as well or, you know. Or the old school graphics. Yeah, yeah. You know, or even just a filter. So you can play it with like the original arcade graphics, like Sega Saturn graphics. You know, I'd love that. Or even more, what I would love is you complete it. And then it's like, actually number two and three are on here as well. Or something like that. Nothing like that announced as of yet. He, he always wants more, doesn't I he? I do always want more. I'm, 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 I'm never satisfied. Seem, like, looking at the trailer, it does seem a bit blurry. Yeah, like, maybe it's the capture software that they've used to put it up there or something, but you think this is the main trailer. It does seem a bit blurry and the kind of, you know... Uh, the, the gun overlay and stuff like that isn't the best kind of... I think it's just the graphical style. You think they've gone for the kind of that deliberate look? Yeah, I think... I don't I don't know the name of the look, but me and my uh, me and my wife recently have been playing a lot of indie games on Game Pass. Completely different genres of games and, you know, stories of games that we've been playing. Um, it Takes Two and A Way Out and some other indie games like... Um, I can't remember the name of it, but like One Way Sail on the Ocean. And my wife, who's 
you know, she's a big gamer, but she doesn't like analyze games like we do. And she said a lot of these modern games all seem to have this really bright, blurry look to them. Yeah. Like mm. it's it's like a stylized, over stylized look, um, which I think is just what they're going for. I don't think it's a case of all oh, the game looks purposely blurry, if that makes sense. It's just, yeah, and probably on the monitor it's gonna look a lot different on the on the yeah, switch. Yeah, yeah, on the switch and stuff. But yeah, really excited for this. Um I posted it on our socials last week. And a couple of uh, friends of the show were like, bet Joe's excited for this. And I was just there, like rubbing my hands together, going, yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that one. So now the House of the Dead, I mean, that in my mind, that's kind of, I know, obviously, Resident Evil as well. They're, they're, they're kind of the two games in my mind that kind of cemented that kind of zombie video it, game it genre. It like the grown-up kind of version of, uh, you know, After Time mm. Crisis and Virtual Cop and stuff. You're like, yeah. oh, I'm going to go and play House of the Dead. That's a bit dark. You know? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, I mean, I always end up talking about Resident Evil. Resident Evil is like my favourite game series of all time, and there's a much bigger lore there than there is with House of the Dead. There's only a handful of House of the Dead games, but I'm loving that we are getting, you know, a remake of it because if there hasn't been anything House of the Dead there was a recent arcade game about three or four years ago, which I have played. Um, but other than that, there hasn't really been anything like console wise since like House of Dead Overkill, which was like 2009 now. And I think House of Dead Is that on the PS3. Yeah, on the PS3 and the Wii. Yeah. House of Dead 4, the arcade game, was on like the PS3 eShop. But that is literally it. So we've not had anything on home console, you know, for 10, 11, 12 years. So loving that it's getting a bit of love wanting more from it hoping that you know there's more games on there rather than just the first one but we'll see i'm sure i'll be grabbing it and playing it <laughs> you know it's interesting how did you play it you know originally i mean i know you always play it on arcade um, we, you know, I, I, originally yeah spending all my holiday money like whenever we'd go to like benadorm <laughs> it'd be in the arcades when i was like a young boy but um i actually had the first two games on pc so i used to play it with a mouse like when i was in school right. um yeah. and absolutely loved it you know and then I have House of the Dead on the Sega Saturn, uh, the original like port of it, um, which is actually a really quite rare, expensive game now, uh, which I didn't realise until recently. But that's got a lot of loading screens in it, like even in the game, like you'd run around a corner and there'd be a loading screen, like just like in the middle of the level. Um, oh, wow. So it wasn't the best port and it, it graphically wasn't very nice. But then obviously House of the Dead 2 for the Dreamcast um, and then... Also, for the Wii, there was a House of Dead 2 and 3 double pack that came out early in the Wii's life, which I was only playing at Christmas. Me and my wife always crank that out and play through House of Dead 2 and 3, like back to back, like every year. We'll do it like once or twice. That control system as well. I mean, you know, we always talk about the fact that we love light gun games, but it's hard to get a light gun on a modern Mm. display. But then, you know, the the more I think about it, there are more ways to play these light gun games. You've got stuff like, you know, the Joy-Cons or, or the Wiimotes. And, they're not, you know, they're I, not I'm as gonna accurate, say that, though. Like, it's, true. It's, yeah. Maybe not. Um, yeah, I agree. But there is one thing that actually, in the last couple of weeks, even though I said I wasn't going to do it, you guys know, I bought myself an Oculus Rift 2. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> even though I keep saying, no, I, I'm over VR, I thought, well, I get, we keep talking about it on the show. I got hold of one, and I was actually playing the other day, and I thought them, you know, the, the hand controls that you've got on those. I thought the light gun the, the, games would be amazing Quest. on this. Sorry, yeah, the, yeah, the Oculus Quest too. Sorry, the latest one. Um, yeah, I, I, I was playing that the other day, and I, I thought, what an amazing machine that would be for like light gun games. Imagine something like House of the Dead in VR. Oh god, you, you need to get in your hands hand on a super hot damn. I've got it. Oh, yeah, I've got it on the PlayStation VR. Really good. But I, I just thought, you know, wouldn't it be an easy win for them to release a lot of these old school kind of. Um, 
you know, shooter games on there, the light gun games on. Yeah, on I mean, they did it on the Wii, like you, like you say, like what just kind of set mm. that discussion off then is that a lot of these games did get released on the Wii in like 2007, 2008. So, you know, they are probably missing a trick, but I don't know if it's just, there's a lot of licensing issues and obviously Sega own the rights and licenses to a lot of these games. So I don't know if it's an issue there, but yeah, that would be pretty incredible. I'd, I'd love to do a Virtua Cop in like VR. I mean, even if they had it <laughs> like, those enemies. not like fully VR, but even if it was like VR as in you're just st- standing in front of an arcade machine in the VR <laughs> shooting the yeah. screen. Yeah, I've machine. seen lots of software that um, kind of has the arcade units and you go down on it in VR, like down the arcades, you have a custom set up there. I'm sure Ravi could uh, mod my Oculus so I can sideload <laughs> those games on it if I give it to him for a weekend. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, very cool to see these old light gun games being playable again. So if you want to check out the trailer, I'll put that. And everything else we talked about in our news this week, you'll find it all on your podcast app or in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, just before we chat, you know, lots of classic FMV games with our special guest this week. Aaron Connors is coming up in just a moment. This podcast is sponsored by our good friends at Better Help Online Therapy. Now, of course, we all get times in life when, you know, it could be a relationship that you're going through. I've had friends recently that have gone through redundancy and kind of, you know, that the stress that takes on you as well. There are people that we care about, friends and family as well. But the thing is, we often don't look inside and think about how we have to care for ourselves, do we? You know what? We often spend a lot of time caring about our friends and family, but really, everyone needs a bit of help from time to time. Oh, absolutely. And something that really resonated with me once was, imagine if you bought a car, but then you found out that's the only car that you could have for the rest of your life. You would massively take care of it. You would look after that car. You would you'd get it cleaned every week and stuff like that. It's the exact same with our mind. We only get one go at life. We only get one go with your body and your mind. So why don't we take care of it the same way we would if it was your only ever car you're going to get in life? So going to therapy and stuff like that, it isn't necessarily, I don't see it as like, oh, it's a way to fix yourself before you're broken or like after you've been broken. It can be a way to prevent you from becoming broken or a way to make yourself better if you are feeling a little bit under the weather or a little bit poorly in your mind and there's absolutely no issue with it whatsoever i think you're right there because i mean a lot of our audience will resonate you know the minute minute your pc starts to glitch a little mm. bit or something you get that repaired straight away you'll buy a new graphics yeah, card or whatever but yeah you know, yeah no that's probably like you say it's probably better <laughs> a better uh Related analogy. Related, yeah, analogy, yeah. <laughs> well, our friends this month at BetterHelp Online Therapy, you know, it's a good time right now just to think, you know, we want you to take care of the most important relationship, the one that you have with yourself as well. And BetterHelp is online therapy that offers so many different options. It can be video, phone, even live chat sessions with your therapist. You don't have to be on camera if you don't want to. And obviously, it is a lot more affordable than doing this in person as well. So I think that is one misconception that people have, that therapy is just for like, you know, rich people or celebrities a lot of people think it's kind of out of their out of their grasp really don't they a bit too expensive um but with this i mean it is a lot more affordable than doing it in person and you'll get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours so you can give it a try and find out why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy so this week's show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and because we want you to get started with this and uh, try it out for yourself our listeners are going to get 10 percent off your first month at betterhelp.com slash retro. So use our exclusive link so they know that we sent you and get 10% off your first month. That is betterhelp.com slash retro. And a big thank you to our friends at BetterHelp 
for their support of our show. And next, we're going to get some incredible stories about classic games, including, of course, the uh, Tex Murphy franchise, old school FMV games as well, with our special guest, Aaron Connors, is next on the Retro Out podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for the main event then when we welcome on our very special guest and we're really excited to talk to this week's guest about the classic Tex Murphy games and uh, the early FMV era that I always find really interesting as well. So let's welcome on our special guest this week, Aaron Connors. How are you doing? I'm excellent. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you joining us. Now, uh, before we get into the stories of the, you know, incredible companies and the games that you've worked on, it's always quite interesting to kind of get a bit of a, you know, a background on our guests' geek credentials, as it were, you know, how it all started. So what's kind of the first um, story in a game that really caught your imagination then, going like right back to your earliest days? Well, that's a really interesting question. So I um, go way, way back to the kind of classic arcade games is what I grew up with. So I was... I was the kid hanging out, um, you know, in the lobby with a pocket full of quarters playing Ms. Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and Tron and uh, games like that. And so I hadn't really encountered a game with a story in it uh, until I started working in the industry. And then all of a sudden I got exposed to some of the new things that were going on, one of which was the game that had just been published by Access Software, which was called Countdown. And uh, I'm not sure how many people would even remember that, but it had just the most immersive environment, had a really compelling kind of uh, John le Carre spy story to it. And I was just in love. I was just like, holy crap, I can make games with stories like this. And um, so, yeah, my I, I actually just kind of stumbled into it so early that I got a chance to actually do it before I got to really appreciate a lot of other people's work. And that game looks really like um, Dark Seed or, or something like that, and it's got a kind of point-and-click yep. uh, driven engine. Did you know about any of the text adventures before or any of the kind of choose-your-own-adventure books? So I grew up with the choose-your-own-adventure books. Um, you know, in addition to the regular books I read, which all influenced me, like you know Sherlock Holmes and Hardy Boys and things like that. But the choose your own adventure concept was just fascinating to me. You know, the idea that it could play out in all these different ways, which, of course, ultimately ended up being kind of the inspiration for the Pandora Directive and the narrative paths we we put together for that. So, yeah, that's always been first and foremost. In fact, Robbie and I were talking before we came on the air about um, the Bandersnatch uh, Black Mirror episode and just how yeah. cool it was to see something like that being done today. Um, so there's still a lot of interest in it. Well, you also created board games as a kid. Um, what, what, what kind of stuff were you making? And uh, were, were they totally original ideas or mashups of existing games? Well, I would. I mean, it's hard not to be inspired when you grow up with board games because obviously, um, you know, growing up in the, the late 60s, early 70s, you didn't have any kind of video game. So for me, I think games like Life, you know, which, you know, allowed you to kind of follow this path around and divert off into different things. There was a one game called Careers, which most people haven't even heard of. But I love that game because um, you basically chose what your goals in life are going to be. And I think it was money, fame and love. And so you would say up front, I want of my 100 points I need to achieve. I want 50 of them to be love and 30 to be fame and 20 to be money. And then as you played the game, you would try to achieve 
objectives that would earn you those points. And those all kind of tie into this interactive approach to game design. Sounds very so like the uh, Sims, which <laughs> you a did little bit, yeah. Like. Um, but the board games that I made were all over the place because I'm a I'm a, a big sports guy. I grew up playing baseball, basketball, and uh, so I made a bunch of sports games and I made a bunch of adventure games. There was a if you guys are you guys familiar with the game Husker Do? No, no. So Husker Do was What's basically a, a matching game. So you had a uh, a game board. And then underneath the game board, you had a disc and the game board was covered with like 32 holes. And when you rotated the disc, it would change the position of matching symbols. And then you would cover those discs and then you'd basically each turn, you'd pick up two of the discs. And if they had a matching character, then you would remove those and you'd play until you'd found all the matches. And so I, I use that concept for randomization for an adventure game. And so I created this kind of Lord of the Rings type environment that had all different types of, you know, swamps and forests and deserts and things like that. And then I would use that Husker Du concept where you would find objects or encounter enemies um, and they would be hidden underneath these discs that you would pick up when you encountered them. And so, you know, if you played it long enough, you'd start to recognize the pattern of the layouts because you only had so many to work with. But um, that randomization was a big part of that experience. And obviously, when you got into video games, that was kind of done programmatically. But I just I always love that idea that you take a basic concept of start here end here and go mm. through a bunch of obstacles. But those obstacles change each time you play. It sounds like you had, you know, a, a really active imagination as a kid. And I mean, did you want to go into screenwriting then? And what kind of experience of that did you have? <laughs> uh, it's funny to think about now, but obviously as a kid, I dreamed of being a professional baseball player. I wanted to be first baseman for the Red Sox was my dream. Right. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't have the ability to get that far, even though I loved it. And so I actually was leaning toward becoming a statistician because I love baseball statistics. And so I actually loved math and wanted to kind of go in that direction. So it was almost the opposite of being creative. But as it turned out, I actually had a knack for creative writing, uh, which I just discovered doing my assignments at school. And when I was in high school, I had a literature teacher um, who told me that if I didn't become a writer, that it would be a, a real shame. And that was always a huge uh, inspiration for me. And so the fact that I ended up just stumbling into the opportunity to combine the creative writing aspect with design and game design in particular um, was just incredibly fortuitous. Well, I, I was wondering, did you have any like formal training or did you work with any actors or any of that kind of experience? No, it was all on the job training. In fact, uh, what, what got me the opportunity with uh, Access Software, and Chris Jones in particular, who was the CFO of, of Access at the time, was that throughout college, I had written these interactive murder mysteries. And so there's a, a board game or a type of board game called How to Host a Murder Mystery. And I had gone to a party where they played that. And I thought that was really fun, but I could do it better. And so I started writing my own interactive mysteries where everyone who came to the party would have been assigned uh, a character to play prior to coming and give them their information about their character. And then when they showed up, we would just kind of introduce the case and people would just start talking and trying to figure out the, the mystery. 
And I'd done about a dozen of those uh, while I was in college. And so when I got hired at Access, I told Chris about this and he had me bring one of them in. And so we went through it and he loved it. And he said, hey, how would you like to co-design Under a Killing Moon with me? And that's literally how I got the job. Wow. I, I remember how popular those were as well, those um, kind of murder mystery nights, you know, people would yep. put them on. Yeah. And uh, yeah, often it wouldn't be an amazing storyline, would it? Yeah. <laughs> the quality of the stories varied somewhat. But, you know, for me, it was, I also liked the theme aspect of it, right? So we'd want people to come in costume. So I'd pick like a, a particular time period that lend itself to some good costumes. And so uh, I also tried to bring people together from different social circles so they wouldn't know each other necessarily. And that really added to it because they would actually interact with each other as the characters more so than as friends. In fact, I remember I, I would introduce people at a murder mystery party and they'd call each other by their character names for a while until they got used to who they really were. So it was just a lot of fun. I mean, it sounds like a lot of the stuff you're doing here was quite, you know, analog based. I mean, were you much of a, a computer guy at this stage? And what kind of hardware did you have at home? <laughs> I was a total Luddite. I mean, I resisted using a word processor. Like I was still using typewriters in college. Electric, but, you know, still. And so it took me a while before I actually kind of warmed up to even using word perfect. So, no, I was not a computer guy at all, which just adds to the fact of, how random it was that I actually got hired and, and put into a game design position with a computer company because I barely know how to turn the thing on. So uh, <laughs> absolutely learned on the job with that as well. You know, when you joined Access then, I mean, were you aware of the company and any of the games beforehand then, or was it all kind of new to you? All new to me. I didn't even realize how big the industry was at that point because, again, I, I didn't have a, a PC. I didn't play video games. And uh, as it turned out, I had a friend that I'd gone to high school with and we had had a few classes together and we were neighbors. And so we knew each other fairly well. And I swear, I think this is the, the whole reason any of this happened was we had a chemistry class together and I hated chemistry. It was like the worst subject for me and our teacher was terrible. And so just to keep myself from going insane, I started writing this like epic poem about our, our, our teacher. And um, the crazy experiments he would do. And I'm a terrible artist, but I do little drawings. And so every day I would just add to this like epic poem. And by the end of the, the semester, I think it was about, you know, 15 pages long. And it was pretty funny and, you know, interesting. And my friend who sat next to me in the class just loved it. He just thought it was the most amazing thing. Did the teacher so, ever see it? No. <laughs> <laughs> but so what happened was, so fast forward, it was a while. It was probably at least five years, close to five years later. This friend of mine had gone into becoming a computer programmer and had gotten hired at Access. And so um, they were getting into these story games. But he said, you know, the quality of them wasn't great. And they really needed someone who was really creative and a good writer. And I was the first guy he thought of. I mean, purely based on this little stupid thing I did in chemistry class. So he tracked me down. This was back before, you know, internet and social media. So he had to track down my uh, relative of mine who was able to get a hold of me. And then he and I met for lunch and he said, yeah, I work for the software company and uh, you should come out and talk to him. I think you'd get along really well with Chris Jones. And, and so that's how that came to be. Well, already in the Tex Murphy series, there have been uh, two titles. So when you started in 
1994 on a under a killing moon you'd you'd probably had to look back at the older titles and think how are we going to develop this character and actually you know turn him into something significant yeah actually they were they were still uh wrapping up uh Martian memorandum at the time and so I actually play a character in Martian memorandum and it's more you know and the characters were you know barely you didn't have to have any acting ability. Some would argue you wouldn't have to have any acting ability to be in our games now. But um, <laughs> a lot of a lot of FMV studios had, um, you know, their own staff that they would hire and and people voicing games and stuff. It's it was quite a bigger practice in the industry back then. It was well with Martian Memorandum. There were only a few characters that actually spoke, and it was just a handful of lines. Um, but they had me play a character mostly because of I think how I looked. Because at the time I had really long hair and just had a kind of an unusual look that they thought would be good for one of the characters. So, so I actually was, was a character in there, but I didn't contribute in any way to the development of the game. And then they did uh, Amazon guardians of Eden. And I kind of got involved with that, but more designing the hint system and documentation, not in the, um, in the design of the game. And then at the end of that was when Chris invited me to work with him on the next Tex Murphy game, which ended up being under killing moons. So, so yeah, I had to play both Mean Streets and Marshall Random just to kind of get a feel for who Tex Murphy was and what had been done so far with the series in order to write the story for Under a Killing Moon. And so, for example, you had the Sylvia Linsky character that was in Mean Streets. And so I made her Tex's ex-wife at the beginning of Under a Killing Moon just to kind of, you know, give some texture to the story. And then, um, yeah, just changed text a little bit. He was kind of this Blade Runner-y guy, just an avatar basically in Martian. And I thought, let's let's take him old school here. And Chris was all for that. So we made some fairly significant, you know, changes to the very little that had been done for Tex as a character in the two previous games. And really I think most people associate who he is with how he was portrayed in under a killing moon and and the games that came after. And like Martian Memorandum was kind of digitized actors, like um, kind of Mortal Kombat style. And uh, Under a Killing Moon ended up being full FMV. So it must have been a a complete change when you went to that kind of project. Well, the Martian Memorandum characters, actually, we we used actors with that. It's just they were heavily pixelated because of the resolution on it. And it was on floppy, obviously. So we were really limited in how much space we had to work with there. So yeah, um, but then you would see them in the environment, and those would be, uh, you know, digitally created characters. So, um, but yeah, when once we went to the at the time it was black screen with the actual actors, it really represented a huge shift. Well, you mentioned about Blade Runner before, and you know, playing um, Killing Moon, you can see stuff like you know influences of obviously that and other sci-fi kind of stuff, and then film noir even elements of it as well. I mean, it was a whole um, crew kind of into that stuff then. Chris and I, Chris Jones and I ended up being kind of the, the creative directors on this. And so, you know, I think everybody else kind of just went along with it. I'm not sure if they loved it or not, but we did, you know, he and I, we found that in addition to um, just getting along personally, we had a lot in common in the things that we enjoyed. So he and I are both film noir buffs and had seen, you know, hundreds of, of movies from the thirties, the forties. And so, 
I think he felt like he'd been kind of this film noir nerd and didn't really have anyone to talk about it with. And as soon as we met, we just hit it off. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen that. And, and so we bonded over a lot of those classic movies. And then he and I both love science fiction and Blade Runner in particular. And we just thought that's kind of a fresh take on it. You know, um, Blade Runner had a had obviously a lot of noir influence, but we took it back to kind of the 1940s detective in the futuristic world. And he and I just, we love that concept. And so we were very excited to, to go in that direction. It was, it was huge at the time as well, that kind of 40s detective uh, vibe mm -hmm. in, in tons of shows and everywhere. You don't see it so much nowadays, actually. No, you don't. Well, and the other influence I would say I would add to that. So you have Blade Runner for the sci-fi setting. You have the noirish stuff uh, for Tex as a character. But yeah, there, there were there were other things like X-Files because we love kind of the paranormal aspect. And so when you integrate that into the mix, too, I think you get a pretty fresh, uh, you know, kind of new approach to it. Because when you're dealing with kind of the aliens in uh, Pandora Directive and kind of the Nazi cult stuff, um, in Under a Killing Moon, you're really adding in kind of an X-Files dimension too. And X-Files to me was was amazing. And so that was a big influence. How different is screenwriting for a game? And uh, what are the kind of considerations that are needed? Well, the biggest issue is the interactivity. Because with a movie or a book, the viewer or the reader is at the mercy of the, the creator, right? So when they're in the movie theater, they just, they watch what you created. Whereas with a game, you have to, accommodate the sense that they're actually driving the action. And so you have to create all of this content for them to, um, to experience, but you also want them to feel like they're having some influence over it, that, that it's happening as a result of the things that they do. And so when you're writing the story, um, you want to find that balance between telling a story and then making it feel like it's actually being driven by the player. Was Ravi touched on before? I mean, you know, back in those early days of FMV, um, a lot of the time it was just you know staff around the offices that would do the the characters, and they weren't known for good acting. How did you convince real actors to join then? And was there kind of a um, a bit of a skepticism about you know video games as a medium still at that stage for like you know proper actors? Absolutely, yeah. It was it was a huge stigma to overcome because you know, in fact, it's probably still the case is that real actors, in fact, you know, back in the day, real actors were stage actors. You know, they thought being in movies was kind of a sellout. And then movie actors were like, well, we'll we'd never do TV. And then TV actors like, well, we'll never do video games. So we were way down the list, um, you know, when we were trying to, to cast. And actually, I think we probably would have been content to just work with local people, um, you know, local community theater type stuff. Obviously, we would have wanted to have some well-known actors because the cachet of, of you know, an actual known actor got a lot of attention and publicity. Yeah, in the end, what happened was we, we had a casting agent, um, Katrina McGregor, who knew a whole bunch of people. And um, one of her closest friends was Margot Kidder. And so Margot Kidder happened to be in Utah because... Uh, she and Russell Means, and they were they were going out together at the time, were doing a film down in southern Utah, and they were going to be uh, flying out of the Salt Lake City airport, and they had like a, a day and a half before they were going to be leaving town. And Katrine said, hey, I work with these guys that are doing this, you know, video game. Would you guys be interested in coming in and just doing a little cameo? And she was uh, famously Lewis Lane, wasn't she? Lois Lane from Superman, yeah. And so, so she came in, and she was great because she was just like, 
yeah, let's do this. You know, um, she didn't have any pretension at all about it. And um, because she did it, Russell Means came along and did it. I think he was a little more skeptical about it, but we were so loose and just having fun. I mean, it was, it was such a fun time. Um, the idea of putting these live actors into these digital backgrounds was still such a new thing. And whenever we'd get something composite, we'd be like, Oh God, that looks so great. You know? And, um, so we were just a fun group to work with and we were just kind of playing fast and loose. And so they came in and spent a couple of like a day and a half with us and we all just had a blast together. And then the whole James Earl Jones thing, um, which was such an amazing opportunity, uh, that came about almost as, as a joke because we, we wanted to have a narrator for the game and we're like, well, who would we want? Well, obviously James Earl Jones would be, you know, my choice. And we all laughed about it and said, well, we should ask, you know, and then as it turned out, we, so we'd been in development for a while and we'd gotten some pretty good press coverage and turned out his son had heard about our game and he said, dad, you got to do it. And so he did it and we were just blown away by that. So, you know, and then we, um, I don't remember how Brian Keith got into the mix, but, um, so by that time, you know, we, we had some recognizable name actors involved in this and it kind of gave us a little bit of credibility. And he's perfect for a narrator, isn't he? Like, oh, wonderful. He's amazing. You know, it was so funny. So the agreement was that he'd do it for much less than his normal rate. Um, but he, but, and he said, how much? And we said, oh, a couple pages, a couple pages. And so I, I put together a script with all of his stuff and I've had the margins all the way out to the end. And I'm like, you know, 10 <laughs> points. Small as fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, so technically it was on two pages, but it was probably about 10 pages of content. But Luckily, we'd made the decision to use some Edgar Allan Poe, um, Mask of the Red Death, as kind of a theme. And I think he really liked that, you know, the kind of classic literature. So so a lot of it is him quoting Poe uh, and then, you know, throwing in the other stuff that was specific to the game. And so, yeah, he seemed to have a good time doing it. Did he have an interest in the medium? I don't think he had any interest at all. But I, I don't think he had any idea really what we were doing. All he knew is he was doing the voice work for some project. Well, did you keep an eye on any kind of rival titles at the time? Because um, I think Seven Guests was out before and um, mm -hmm. Sierra were also doing like really huge things at the time. Well, so our goal with Under Killing Moon, because uh, we wanted it to be 3D, you know, have a, a totally open world that you could walk through. And so our inspiration was we said we would love to have the movement capability of Wolfenstein and then the graphic quality of Seventh Guest, because that kind of set the bar for the uh, FMV at that point. And so, yeah, we were very much aware of that and keeping tabs on everything everyone was doing. And I thought Seventh Guest was great. Um, Mist, I thought, was a really nice game that, that created a really nice immersive environment with really great graphics for the time. So those were all inspirations for us. Uh, we did keep an eye on other FMV games that came out, but, you know, most of them just were not very well done and um and we were kind of like uh oh you know this is kind of of diluting the pool here because we actually wanted other people to put out good games so that we could keep making games in this genre and as it turned yeah. out it was not to be well how important was like soundscapes and kind of catching the dialogue making sure it was really clear and also like the effects and incidental music and stuff that was going on 
we had a really wonderful audio guy named John Clark, and uh, he had been childhood friends with Chris Jones and Doug Vandegrift, who was uh, one of the artists. And so John was was really a sound nerd. And so he was very good at getting good quality sound and he would handle all the sound effects work. And so we were really just lucky to have someone who was very good at his job to, to do that for us. Um, nowadays, obviously you have tools available to you that allow, you know, pretty much anyone to be able to do a lot of that sound work. Um, but there's still like a, a knack to it. You know, you have to have the ear for it. So yeah, that's always been an important part. I'm not sure we understood how important it was at the time because we were so focused on the visuals uh, but that was still always a consideration well under a killing moon i mean from memory that came on um four cd roms it did and in 1994 i remember you know most studios were still kind of getting to grips with what felt like the infinite storage of a single cd rom i mean was that like a kind of a hard sell to management then that it's going to be on all these cds and uh did you have any difficulty even fitting it on that amount? I mean, because that, that seemed like a lot of data for the time. Well, so when we first started development and made the decision, because initially we weren't going to do it for CD-ROM because that's it still wasn't uh, as widely available as, as we would have liked. You know, it was still kind of new technology. And so we debated for the first few months whether we should just build it for floppy like had been done previously or to just go for it with the CD-ROM. Obviously, we I think we made the correct choice. But yeah, at the time we thought, how are we going to fill the CD? You know, it's like there's so much space, you know. And um, yeah, so we we filled up the first one pretty quickly. And since Chris Jones was management, being the CFO, he just said, well, we're just going to do whatever it takes to get it done. Uh, the one thing I had to do was that one of my roles it actually became the, the relationship Chris and I had as designers, he became more of an executive designer. And so he would have ideas and then he'd throw them to me and I would integrate them. But as far as the nitty gritty stuff, like point systems, hint systems, um, that was all on me. And one of the things that I had to do was figure out how to allocate the data on the disks. So to minimize disk swapping, which obviously is a thing of the past. And I'm guessing some younger listeners won't even know what that is. But uh, yeah, you would have to swap disks occasionally. And the problem was that if you were kind of bouncing around talking to people, if you got into that uh, loop of I'm having to swap a disk every time I go somewhere, it got really aggravating. And so I spent a lot of time figuring out how to minimize the disk swapping with that game. Yeah, and I remember at the time, my CD-ROM drive had a, had a caddy as well. So yeah. it was even more hassle. <laughs> I had to get that out and open it and everything. Did, did it increase the price of the um, game much having four CD-ROMs? You know, I can't say. I was never involved in the in the pricing part of things, but I do know that the AAA titles, which Killing Moon was, um, were going for about a hundred bucks retail, and that's what that one went for. So I'm not sure if it went up because of the CDs or if that was just the going rate. Probably for four CDs, more value for money. I get a lot more game in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I do remember that. I think we said you had to have a meg of RAM to play the game, but we really recommended four. And at the time, that was, I don't know, 200 bucks a meg, so it was not cheap. Yeah, um, so there was a big change when you went to the Pandora Directive, which was like 1996. So technology must have moved on. And um, how did that kind of help in, in creating that game? Well, um, RAM became more affordable. That was a big thing. And then uh, just processing speed got a little bit faster. We used the same exact engine we'd used in Under a Killing Moon. I, a lot of people are surprised by that. 
we just learned how to use it more effectively. And so the technical development between Killing Moon and Pandora wasn't that significant. We just got more out of what we had created for Under a Killing Moon. And did having, you know, a good director and like well-known actors, did that kind of convince others that, you know, FMV titles were to be taken more seriously? Did you kind of feel that change was coming? Well, so Adrian Carr, who we brought in for the Pandora Directive, just had an eye for composition, you know, how to how to set up a scene and how to light it properly. Because Chris and I, you know, we, we knew what we liked, uh, mostly from, you know, being noir fans, you know, so we, we loved shadows and, um, you know, stark contrast and things like that. But as far as comp- composition of scenes, that was something that Adrian really brought to the table for us. And uh, as far as the, the actors, so the three actors, the three main actors that we had in Pandora, so Kevin McCarthy, Barry Corbin, and Tanya Roberts, they were legit, you know, it's like um, Brian Keith in the day was was a, a top actor, but it had been quite a while since he'd really done anything. Same with Margot Kidder. Russell Means wasn't really well known. Uh, obviously, James Earl Jones was 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 very well known, but he didn't actually appear in the games just as a voice. So when we were able to get Kevin McCarthy in particular, who I just adored, he was an amazing man and or such a good actor. Um, and the fact that he appears in the intro of the game and in one of the first extended conversations and really sets up the entire story, he just brought this, this gravitas to the story, right? So here's this legit, classic, well-trained, well-known actor right at the beginning of the game, putting in a performance where he's really putting in an effort. He's not just phoning it in, you know, and I feel like that really set the tone for the whole game. And then, you know, Barry Corbin was fantastic, very menacing as the Jackson Cross character. And then Tanya Roberts was just beautiful and charming and was kind of a perfect femme fatale and ended up being a really nice foil for the Chelsea character that we'd introduced in Killing Moon. And that love triangle between her character and and Chelsea, played by uh, Suzanne Barnes, and then Tex was, was, I think, kind of the magic of that game. What what was the like balance of real sets and green screen like? Were you kind of rendering stuff uh, easier, and uh, was it easier to do virtual sets then in the first one? Um, I'm not sure. I would say it was easier. It's just we had made that decision, you know, that we were going to to have all of the backgrounds be artificial and then composite in the live actor. It wasn't until the next game, Overseer, where we really started playing more with some sets and things like that. So. What we would do here is, is if the scene required actual interaction with the actor, we found it was simpler to have that be an actual prop. So, for example, when Tex is in his office and he and his, you know, like the Kevin McCarthy's character in the opening scene, the, the chairs they're sitting on, the desks they're sitting at are all rendered. Um, but, for example, in the very opening or one of the very opening scenes you have the murder scene where the girl's dead in bed and we just thought we need to have her actually in a bed because to be able to create a digital version of the bed and make it look convincing was was going to be too difficult so very little of actual real props in that game we got more into that in the next game well, the Pandora Directive, that kind of took a darker turn from the earlier games. And, you know, some of the, particularly, you know, the first couple of games felt a little bit tongue-in-cheek at times. I mean, did you want to turn it into more of a kind of serious and exciting series then? Was that change in direction conscious? So when I played the first two games, um, which I hadn't been involved in, you know, they were very jokey 
and uh, Mean Streets in yeah. particular, um, and not to cast dispersions on the creative forces, but it was very kind of juvenile, you know, a lot of kind of, I don't know, like junior high level jokes. Yeah, we compared it to Leisure Suit Larry a bit. Earlier, yes, exactly. That's actually a perfect, <laughs> perfect comparison. And, you know, that's got its place. But I think ultimately we were working toward creating really an interactive movie. You know, we wanted it to be just higher quality. And so even if we'd done a straight comedy, we'd want it to be, you know, a really good comedy as opposed to just kind of a, a jokey thing. So Under Killing Moon was was all for laughs. I mean, there was a little bit of serious undercurrents in the story, but for the most part, we're playing it for laughs. In fact, our probably our inspiration for the tone of that particular game was Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, the Steve Martin movie. And yeah. um, we loved that kind of just random humor. And it worked well, I think, for Under Killing Moon because we weren't taking ourselves seriously. I think if we'd tried to do a really compelling, darker story with Under Killing Moon, we would have gotten roasted because, you know, the qual overall quality of the acting and, and the visuals and things just weren't up to that. And so we always felt like, hey, if we're laughing at ourselves, it's going to be hard for other people to, to pile on with us. And so I feel like that was definitely the right way to go with, with Killing Moon. But then once we got comfortable and we felt like we can take this up a level or two. I think Chris and I had always wanted to do something that was just, like I say, a little more noirish. There's always humor in our favorite noir. And we were, I guess, aiming for something more kind of Indiana Jones-ish. So it's got that kind of Saturday matinee feel to it, but it's very adventure-y. And, um, so, and I feel like Pandora really, really hit the mark with that. It didn't take itself totally seriously, but it was definitely a little darker, a little more serious than what we'd done in the past. Well, we'll move on to uh, Overseer in a bit, but um, I, I was first wondering, like, how much was DVD technology kind of pushed to you guys? And um, do you feel it didn't really deliver in the end? You know, uh, everybody said it would be the future of gaming DVD and interactivity, and it kind of turned into backseat, backstage footage and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, just a few extras. Well, so the, the story, which has been well-documented of how Overseer came to be, uh, was, was directly because we were in, approached by Intel, and Intel was pushing the DVD technology. And they said, hey, we'll fund the development of a game, but with some pretty significant restrictions, mostly on how long we would have to develop it. And so we, I had a whole other story that was going to go in a completely different direction um, as the sequel to the Pandora directive. And so Intel comes along and says, Hey, we'll pay for your next game, but you got to turn it out in a year. And, uh, for us, we'd done Pandora in, in a year and a half and that was record time, but we were already planning on upgrading the engine. And so there were going to be a lot of changes uh, that would take time. And so Chris Jones's idea was, well, let's, um, let's update the mean street story. And so he thought by already having kind of a basic plot that it would save us time uh, developing it. And then we would have it be a little bit smaller game than what Pandora was. But as it turned out, I mean, I had to go back to Mean Streets, had to play through it a bunch of times, get familiar with it, and then honestly had to really rewrite it almost from scratch. And so there's the basic shell of the story that was in Mean Streets, but almost everything is completely rewritten in that. And so it didn't really save any time for me, but we were able to get it done in you know a short enough time that it that it met with Intel's requirements, uh, but it was not the game that we had intended to put out, and so um, 
as far as the DVD technology, I, I think it was fine. You know, it was new technology and we tried our best to, to build a game that would run with it. But uh, yeah, in retrospect, honestly, even though I think Overseer is a really good game, I kind of wish that opportunity hadn't come up. I, I like to think about what, what would have happened if we'd had, you know, two years to do a game and had just done the story that I had intended to do uh, following Pandora, which would have would have been pretty amazing, I think. Well, as we got into the late 90s, obviously, in a 3D gaming really started to take off and everyone started buying dedicated 3D graphics cards. I mean, did you see the, the popularity of adventure games and point and click and even FMV games start to drop off a bit when 3D gaming started to take off? Yeah, absolutely. No question. And, and that was a big thing. So, you know, we were a pretty successful little company. And at the end of the 90s, there was just a lot of consolidating going on in the video game industry. So... You had some big players, you know, Take Two, Microsoft, Ubisoft, EA, and they were starting to absorb smaller companies who couldn't compete uh, for the public's attention and shelf space because you know you were still buying your games in in video game stores, and so it just became a matter of survival. That in the end, you really couldn't stay in business for yourself if you weren't one of the big boys, and so Microsoft came along and made us a really nice offer. And so we ended up being bought by them and their interest was exclusively in 3D games. You know, they just didn't have any interest at that time in, in the old style adventure games. And so we lobbied hard for years with them to give us a chance to do a version of Tex Murphy and we just couldn't ever get them to bite on it. Well, they, they were working on projects like uh, one that we've heard a few things about on this podcast, which was the uh, Black Pearl with Mark Hamill. Um, were, you, were you involved in that at all and mm-hmm. knew what happened? Yeah, actually, um, Mark and I actually became pretty good friends because we were collaborating on on how to take his story and turn it into a, a video game story. In fact, I used to take him out to this old this bar in downtown Salt Lake called the Portocol, and um, we would there was this uh, it was a three level huge place, and there was this little play little area down in the the lowest level back in the corner. It was a perfect place. It's where I did a lot of my writing, and so he and I would go down there. This back in the day when people still smoke cigarettes and uh, he and I would go down there and, and, and drink and smoke and, and throw ideas around and do design and writing. And it was an awesome experience, but uh, yeah, unfortunately that was one of the projects, one of many projects that we put time in that ended up being canceled before they were released. Cause that was like a, a crime filler and it was also um, like created by Mark Hamill and uh, a comic book series as well. Yeah. So it was a, uh, Dark Horse, I think, was the uh, yeah 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 you know, was the graphic novel line, and yeah, I, I don't know if he did multiple uh, graphic novels of it, but I saw the initial one, and it was you know very much in line. I mean, it, nowadays it would probably get picked up and made for Netflix because you have so many of these kind of you know DC and Marvel type stories, and this was very much in that vein. Um, really good story, Mark's very creative, funny guy. And uh, the story he wrote was, was excellent. And I think it would have made a wonderful game, but yeah, Microsoft was, had so many things going on at that time. Um, they also, one of the projects they had was the tie-in with the AI movie that Spielberg directed. And mm. um, I worked on a, a script for an, an adventure game for that as well. And um, unfortunately, when the movie came out, I'm not sure if it was just not what Microsoft was expecting or it wasn't successful enough, but we had a number of games in development at Microsoft and they were all canceled. You know, I'm quite interested in, you know, because I've, I've read about the Black Pearl. I mean, kind of how far along was that? And is there kind of any 
surviving elements of that game anywhere? Like, have you got a, an old hard disk in the attic with any of it on there still? I don't have anything, but I, I'm sure there there is content around somewhere. We had we had a few people that were pack rats that would you know that would just once people were done with it, they just put it in a box and take it home. Yeah, we had done a lot of work. So the whole script was done. Um, I'd also been the designer on it. And so I'd done most of the game design and we were, we were well into development. You know, we had probably a third of the game done when they pulled the plug on it. So yeah, it'd be great if that surfaced one day. I'll have to ask around. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's just, yeah. I, we've, we've kind of scattered to the, to the winds over the years, but I'm sure somebody has something somewhere. Well, have you noticed, you know, over recent years, I mean, there's obviously been a big interest in, you know, retro gaming, you know, hence our podcast and similar ones. But have you noticed a revival in point and click adventures and, you know, adventure games in general and FMV titles in recent years? Have they kind of come back in vogue, particularly in like, you know, the indie gaming scene? Yes, absolutely. Um, So I, uh, as I've, so when I was actively designing the Tex Murphy games during the 90s, I spent a lot of time playing other people's games um, as much just to kind of see what was going on out there. Uh, once we got into the 3D games, I kind of lost interest in gaming. And um, even though I continued to work in the industry and you know worked on a whole bunch of different games, I just found that as I got older, I was just less interested in what was going on. Every once in a while, a game would come out that would catch my attention. You know, Uncharted was one of them. Um, but of course, that's, again, I, I feel like kind of a natural evolution of what Tex Murphy would have been if we'd been continu- continuing to make games. Uh, but that was in Red Dead Redemption was another one that I just loved. In fact, all the all the um, Rockstar games are fantastic. Uh, I did play L.A. Noir. That was another great one. But by and large, I kind of just lost interest in general. And um, it wasn't until, I guess, maybe the last six or seven years. So I have we have a really still a very active Tex Murphy fan community. And I've met a bunch of these people. I'm friends with a bunch of them. And one friend in particular, uh, Fred Buer, who lives in Norway, is, is a really avid gamer. And he and I stay in, in pretty frequent contact. And so he actually keeps an eye out for games that he thinks would interest me. And so he'll point one out and then I'll go check it out. And I've just seen a lot of these old style point and click games starting to really get some traction. Uh, one Gemini Rue came out a few years ago and I looked at it like, wow, this is going back to Martian Memorandum, really, you know, um, going with this kind of real 8-bit look, even though that's an intentional, you know, aesthetic choice. Uh, they could obviously make it, it kind of reminds me of South Park, right, where they, they make it look rough, even yeah. though it's yeah. hard to do. So, yeah, there have been a whole bunch of the Wad Jedi games um, are all kind of in that same vein of the point and click where there's just a lot of emphasis on the story. And I love that. I mean, I think maybe it's just from the era that I, you know, fell in love with video games, but I love seeing a resurgence in that kind of uh, retro style of gaming. Well, talking of a resurgence, um, you guys did a Kickstarter and uh, it was absolutely amazingly successful and you created the Tessa effect. So what was it like kind of working after 16 years back on Tex Murphy? And did you have to get back into the vibe and uh, kind of learn a few things about him again? Well, it was that was a really interesting situation for me personally, because at the time I was with Electronic Arts and I was a senior designer on The Sims. And obviously that's a huge conflict of interest. You know, you're 
most video game companies, especially the big ones, do not like you contributing to another video game company. And so I actually had to apply to get permission to provide the script for that game. And I had to convince them that I basically had the script done and that I could just hand it off. Um, that wasn't totally true. There was still a lot that had to be done to make it work. Uh, one of the witches that we were using actors who were now 15 years older than they were in the last game. And so it required us, at least for me, um, it required it for the story to jump into the future um, in order to not, you know, like if <laughs> literally if we'd picked up from the last scene of, of uh, Overseer and all of a sudden everyone's 15 years older and we don't even bother to try and explain it, that would be a little weird. So, so I had to kind of change the story around to move them into the future. And that required, you know, a pretty significant amount of new writing. And then that was kind of it. They, and, and I don't know how, God bless the people in HR at EA, but they actually allowed me to appear with some of the promotional stuff for the Kickstarter. Um, I still can't believe they let me do that, which was wonderful. But yeah, uh, that was kind of the extent of my involvement in the development of that game. And so I gave them the script and then went back to my job. And um, as it turned out, you know, Chris, as happens during development, you have to sometimes make some big changes. You have to, you know, scale down the original vision. And unfortunately, I wasn't there to help with, you know, editing and rewrites and things like that. So I wish I could have been because like, that was kind of my primary role when I worked with Chris on the previous games. But I think overall, I think uh, the fans were very happy with how Tesla turned out. And after, you know, kind of patiently waiting for almost two decades to get a sequel, um, I think I think it was actually a really great experience for people. Well, um, there's been some remasters as well, and uh, some of the quality of them are great. Uh, what did you think when you first saw that footage, and did it kind of help originally filming on 16mm? So you're talking about the Pandora Directive. Yeah, so yeah. Um, so the, the thing with the Pandora Directive, so that came out in 96, as you mentioned. So now it's been 26 years, technically. Um, Chris and I always felt like that was... For the time, it was the very best game we were capable of producing. We felt like, you know, the combination of the story, the gameplay, the actors we had in, where we were with the technology at that time, just really delivered on the promise of what an interactive movie could be. And by its very nature of having been created in the mid-90s, there were huge limitations, you know, on, on what we could do, uh, graphically in particular. And so... Um, I think we'd always kind of in the back of our minds thought maybe someday we'll do a, a remaster of it, but we also felt like how much could we, how much, you know, it isn't like a, a film where it's just on the film. I mean, we, we had to kind of, of scale everything down so it would run on a computer back then. So it was really amazing to us when we went back to the, the original tapes with the uh, video of the actors on it. And then Matt Van Roon, who's, who's been, uh, doing a, a ton of work on this project went and got them remastered and they came out looking almost like they could have been done today, which was almost miraculous, I think. And so when we're looking at the the quality difference between what was in the game in 96 and what we're seeing now, it's really just stunning. Um, but that's the only one we've, we've done any remastering on. So as far as the other games, 
we'll have to see. But Pandora for, just holds a special place for us, and so it was the one that we would want to do the remaster of. Well, there was meant to be a, a follow-up to Tesla Effect, the Poison Pawn, um, which I know you were involved with as well, but I, I did read last, officially kind of got put on hiatus or cancelled only last April. I mean, what was kind of the story there, and where does that lie at the moment then? Well, this is, um, I mean, this is kind of a delicate subject because it uh, began as one thing and then kind of became another thing. The original idea was simply that you had a, a handful of very talented Tex Murphy fans who asked us for permission to create their own basic fan update of Overseer um, for the same reasons that we would, that we're doing the Pandora remaster. It's just, you know, really cool game, great story, all of that, but a lot of it's kind of dated with the technology. And so, um, so we said, yeah, go ahead. And then they started producing stuff. We went, wow, that looks amazing. You know, this, this doesn't have to just be a fan-made game. This could be like a full-on, you know, remaster and, and release it as a, as a real game. And then th just there was kind of this transition, kind of an awkward transition between it just being a little passion project to now actually being an organized, structured project. And I think it just kind of got a little uncomfortable for some of the people involved where it wasn't something necessarily they wanted to sign on to, you know, to do something bigger like that. And, um, and we may have come across too strong or maybe, you know, just who we are as the creators of, of the series that they felt like obligated to do what we told them, even though they weren't comfortable with it. So anyway, there was just, there was some miscommunication about it. And um, in the end, we just basically relinquished back to them and said, just do what you want with it, go back to your original thing. And, and we'll, we'll, um, we'll definitely, you know, support you in that. And we'll kind of back away from being actively involved in it. And, and honestly, I don't know where it is at that point or at this point, because it's really just back on those original guys to either do it or not. Well, uh, another thing that people can check out as well is the series of novels that you've done. And um, do they differ a little bit from the game um, being in novel form? Yes. Yeah, so the, so there's kind of an interesting story behind that in that, um, so I had, I had done the story for Under a Killing Moon and it was my first game I'd worked on first story for a game. And so I'd come up with this, <laughs> this epic story, you know, it's just massive. And, um, so I give it to Chris to read and he's like, well, this is wonderful. There's no way in hell we can do even 10% of this. So he's like, go back and, you know, really scale it down. And then once it's kind of to the scope that's more manageable, then we can go with that. So I had this original idea. Um, and then, so we make the game and move on to Pandora. And I learned so much in the process of creating Under a Killing Moon. And I thought, I really need a very well-defined story for this next game for Pandora. And so I decided to write it in the way I'm comfortable, which was as basically as a novel. And so I started just writing the story as a novel and I was... I don't know, maybe six or seven chapters into it. And then the plan would be that I would then cull the story out of the novel. And I was approached by a company called Prima, Prima Publishing. And there were so many games coming out in that time period that were really heavy on story. They wanted to start a line of fiction based on popular video games. And so because Killing Moon had gotten so much publicity, they reached out to me and said, would you be interested in doing a novelization of Under a Killing Moon? I said, I would, but I actually am writing a novel for the sequel. Do you want to see what I've got? 
And they said, yes. So I sent uh, the chapters I'd written for Pandora and they said, we love it. Let's sign a two book deal. Um, they said, go ahead and finish the Pandora novel. We'll publish that first. And then we'd like you to go back and do a novelization of Under a Killing Moon. So that's what happened. The Pandora directive novel actually came out before the game did. And the story in Pandora, the novel is very close to what's in the game, obviously. The only difference being that the game had the three different narrative paths and the book could only tell one of them. And so the book basically has kind of the default path, kind of the middle path. And then I went back and did the novelization of Killing Moon, which allowed me to actually bring in a lot of story elements that I had in my original idea that weren't, you know, manageable for the game. And so the Pandora novel is very close to the game. Under Killing Moon novel is very different from the game. So with Tesla Effect, it was a very similar thing, was that I had kind of the basic outline of the story and I started writing the novel and then I had to separate from the development of the game. And so the second half of the Tesla Effect game is very different than the book because we were on two completely different paths. And so it's been really interesting to have um, people that have both read the book and play the game give their take on just how different the stories ended up going. So yeah, there are pretty significant differences between at least two of the books and the games. Well, you can get hold of the uh, paperback, the ebook, and there's audiobook versions of your uh, Tex Murphy novels as well on your website, um, aaronconnors.net, um, which I'll put in our show notes as well if people want to go and check those out. I mean, have you got plans to do any more then? Is there anything else coming up? Yes. Um, and by the way, thank you for the plug. So yeah, the um, it's, I love audiobooks because I, I have to commute quite a bit and it's nice to be able to just throw a, you know an audiobook in to listen to. And so I thought it's a pretty big market, especially with the Audible, um, you know, Audible becoming quite popular. And so, so I ended up uh, creating audiobook versions of these books, which had been written way back in the mid '90s, and those audiobooks didn't come out until you know 2015 or so. So now my my plan is is to have an audiobook version of any book that I publish. Um, so I have four of them: Poisoned uh, Tex Murphy and the Poison Pawn was the fourth novel, and that was. For anyone who doesn't know, it's basically the story of Overseer, but told within a different framing narrative. So uh, for people who've played the Overseer game, they know that the game takes place after the Pandora Directive, but the story that is told by Tex is from way back in his past. And so um, with the Poison Pawn, I actually tell the story now seven years after he told it the first time. Uh, in the Overseer game. I know this is sounding really complicated, but basically it's um, it takes the story into the future, but then still tells the old story from years in the past. So it's similar to Overseer in some ways, but very, very different in the context of it. Um, so there's one book that I am in the middle of writing right now, which is called Tex Murphy and the Romanoff Enigma. And that tells the story of what happened for people who are Tex Murphy fans, they'll know this. There's a seven-year gap in the arc of the story where we know almost nothing about what happened during that time period. And this story kind of fills that gap. And then there's kind of a series finale story because we we still need to kind of bring everything together in, in, a, in a big finish. And so I have two books for sure, uh, one that's half done and then one more to come. And so at the very least, there'll be six books in the series. And I've had a bunch of people ask if I would do a novelization of the Martian Memorandum story. And I also have two other smaller stories that I've written. And so maybe I would do one book that just has three little novellas in it. 
And so that's kind of what I have um, for the future. It's great that the the Tex Murphy kind of universe is getting expanded into so many different things. I, I love the idea of doing more audio books as well. I'm the same. I can, you know, driving around or being on a plane or just even when you're on, you know, holiday, walking around with your, your earphones and listening to audio books. It's just such an easy way to consume these stories. And the hours just fly by as well. So I think that's a really good idea. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, I'll link up your website and I'll show that so people want to keep an eye on you, on the progress of, of those projects. Aaron, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing some of your stories with us this week. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure.